Welcome to the Lighthouse Podcast, a resource created by Lighthouse Family Retreat to strengthen families living through childhood cancer. You'll hear stories from families, educational information on childhood cancer, and most importantly, we will be there to encourage your family during your journey. Hey, welcome back to season three of this podcast. We're so excited about this season because we have some amazing guests coming on to share their stories. We've got childhood cancer survivors and their parents. We have people working to fund research for childhood cancer and those serving on the front lines taking care of patients. That's right. And we are super excited and looking forward to September being Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. We really love this month to highlight families and really look at how we can raise the awareness around what families go through with childhood cancer. So super excited about all the guests we're going to have on the podcast, but we're also hosting a few events in September, both in Atlanta and down in Florida, down in Alice Beach on September the 11th. So mark your calendars if you're in either one of those areas on that weekend. We'd love for you to join us. You can check out lighthousefamilyretreat.org for more info on our gold parties. You know, often I think when people think about pediatric cancer, we think about little ones. Mm -hmm. But honestly, about a third of pediatric cancers are diagnosed in teenagers, like 15 to 19 years old. And I just want people to really start to imagine being diagnosed with pediatric cancer when you're just starting to like grow up and spread your wings and fly into adulthood. It brings its own set of challenges to the journey. That's right. So we thought it would be a really good idea to talk to someone who's actually walked that path uh, as a teenager. Thankfully, Kayla Funk was willing to sit down with us and share her story of being diagnosed at the age of 18, so much later into those teenage years, and diagnosed with stage four neuroblastoma, which is typically found in children under five years old. And we are really, really thrilled to say that it's been five years since Kayla's last treatment, Mm -hmm. and she's happy and healthy and living in Tucson, Arizona with her husband. She is also the founder and creative director at Open Hands Overflowing Hearts, and she's really into photography and traveling and writing. Kayla is a true force, Mm -hmm. as you will hear in our conversation with her, and I think parents of teenagers with cancer will especially find her wisdom encouraging and her spunk inspiring. Let's listen in. Yep. So we're here this morning with one of our new friends, Kayla Funk, who has a really, really great story. And I got to sit down with her months ago and hear it. And I've also talked to your brother and sister, which we're going to hear from in the future, which is fun. But your story with pediatric cancer starts a little bit differently because you weren't an itty bitty when it started. You were actually getting ready to launch and be kind of a big grown up. And your story of when you were diagnosed um, as a parent kind of made my heart go, oh, my goodness. So Let's start with that, like how this whole thing started and where you were when it started. Yeah, um, you're right. It was very different, I think, than a lot of people's stories. I was 18 years old and you hit the nail on the head. I was like ready to move out. I was about to go to school. I was ready to spread my wings and fly. And that just didn't happen. I was actually um, in Kenya. I was 18 and I started getting sick, having nosebleeds, bruising. I didn't feel well, headaches, et cetera, just a whole collection of symptoms. But because of the conditions on which we were living and we had been traveling, the altitude I, you know, used to explain away the nosebleeds, the hiking I used to explain away the back pain, et cetera. Like there were so many things that I wasn't afraid of the symptoms I was having until one at 
some point I just realized, okay, we, we were about to go into a part of the country that didn't have um, any medical care. And I was like, it would be irresponsible for me to leave the city, not knowing what all of these symptoms mean. So I went to a doctor and basically after lots of tests and everything, they just said, whatever it is, we, we could do more testing and we could find out, but really we think you probably need to go home and, you know, be with your family and see a doctor locally where you live, go back to the United States. So that is what I did. And I was diagnosed with neuroblastoma, um, which is typically diagnosed in kids under age five. So that was in and of itself, just a weird situation for an 18 year old, but it was also weird in that I had genetic mutations that were really odd for older patients to have. Um, it presented itself in a way that's really uncommon. I didn't have a primary tumor like a lot of neuroblastoma patients have. Everything about it was just weird. And um, all of a sudden I was at the space where, I mean, I was literally in a foreign country being, you know, an adult-ish, as much as an 18 year old is traveling and um, getting ready to start school. And all of a sudden I came home and I, I don't even know. It was like, I was a toddler again. And that was, that was kind of the story of my journey the whole time. It was like, I would build up the strength and become my own person and get overcome these challenges. And then all of a sudden I was knocked back down to like completely dependent on my parents. And um, that was a, a very defining feature of the, of the whole time that I was sick of this coming back and being stuck kind of in a way that I couldn't be independent. Like I wanted to be. So Kayla, it's, um, you know, neuroblastoma, like you mentioned, typically diagnosed in, in kids, uh, a lot of them under the age of five. Um, so it's not something necessarily that's going to be easily treated at a, at a, a adult hospital, if you will. And a lot of children's hospitals still treat a lot of uh, young adults, even up like into their early 20s. So what did that look like for you? Where were you treated? Um, were you, is it a children's hospital? What was that process like for you? Sure. Um, I was actually, well, given my first diagnosis like of cancer, they didn't know what type it was yet, but I was given my first diagnosis of cancer at an adult hospital. And um, very quickly, the oncologist who was seeing me said, this is definitely a pediatric disease and you need to see a pediatric oncologist. Um, And so at that point they referred me to Children's and I was at Children's of Alabama for the rest of my treatment. Well, I actually did visit around the country and um, at various points to see specialists of certain types of treatments and stuff like that. Um, But Children's of Alabama is where I was primarily treated and um, that was such an interesting, it, a blessing and also difficult because now having been to adult hospitals and, and interacting in the adult medical world versus the children's medical world, I realize what a blessing it is to be treated at a children's hospital because, I mean, I just can't say enough great things about the quality of care that children's hospitals provide. Um However, it was really jarring for me to be somebody who was so independent and so um, ready to be an adult. And honestly, I, I say this not out of like pride in myself, but just 
looking back objectively on who I was when I was 18, I was a mature kid. I was a really like, I was so ready to be an adult and in so many ways. And it was a very jarring experience to then be sitting in a children's hospital room treated like I'm a baby. The doctor would come in to talk to us, not knowing me, not knowing my parents, not knowing any of us. And they would look straight past me and talk to my parents and say, she has this going on. These are the things we're going to do for her. How do you feel about doing, you know, going this treatment route to my parents? And I would be like, hello, me, I'm the one being treated. Talk to me. Um, And that was a really interesting like dichotomy of being aware of like, they're, they're taking such good care of me, but also I want to be treated like an adult and not like a child. Um, So that was, that was really interesting. There were lots of things that I ended up kind of makeshift doing to try to mitigate that issue. I put a sign on my door one time that said, please not before entering, just because I was so tired of being treated like I was, you know, two years old and somebody could just barge in on me anytime I wanted. I was like, hello, I'm an adult. I'm, I'm a grown, you know, person. Give me some privacy. Yeah. What other ways did you have to advocate for yourself? I mean, that's a great idea putting the sign on the door, but like if someone was listening and they are in your shoes, because we, we know a lot of kids that are at that age that aren't really kids anymore. Yeah. What other ways did you have to advocate for yourself in the hospital? Oh, there were countless times that I think, I mean, again, the quality of care is so good, but I think most of the time people in children's hospitals are used to treating children. And when you're treating a child, um, you know, a six-year-old might not be able to explain what the problem is. The six-year-old can say, I don't feel good, but they might not be able to explain the feeling that they're having in their stomach or whatever. So I, I think one of my biggest frustrations was that um, I wasn't like, people didn't trust my, my assessment of myself. And so over time that improved, but there were a lot of times where I had to say, no, I cannot receive more fluids right now because I am very swollen and I need, like, I need Lasix. I'm, I'm aware of what's going on in my body and that is not going to work. Not in the sense of like, I know what treatment's going to work for me, but just listen to me, please. Um, these are, this is a real problem that I'm experiencing and you have ways to solve this problem. Please listen to my experience. And a lot of that came from my parents. Like I I had to tell my parents, like, let me, let me, let me talk. Mm -hmm. Um, because when it comes directly from me, I think there's more power in the, that, that relationship that the doctors and the nurses would trust me more when I would, when I was saying it myself versus others just talking about me. Um, so that was one thing, just getting personal with the doctors and nurses and the people caring for me. Another was really like silly things like putting a sign on the door, like, um, and even not just a sign on the door, but I would like put paper up on the windows so that people couldn't look in my room and just say, tell the, the, the doctors and the nurses that day, if you want to check on me. I don't want you peeping in the window. I want you to knock, ask if you can come in and then ask me how I'm feeling. Um, A lot of it was just kind of 
setting my boundaries, establishing like what was going to be okay with me and what wasn't, which was really hard at first. But once I started doing that, it really, people started to expect that of me. And I kind of got a a reputation within the hospital of being like the one who's not going to let you, you know, walk all over her kind of, um, not that that's anybody's intention, but again, it's just a different way of caring for a child than it is an adult. So what kind of conversations did you and your parents have around this? Like, how did you include them in that process of, uh, of just talking through, Hey, mom and dad, you know, I'm, I want to be the one they're looking at you. I want them to look at me this I'm 18, you know, now, and, and even probably past 18 that you were getting treatment. Right. Uh, but just how did you have the conversations with them or did you have the conversations with them to, Hey, I wanted this to transition more to me than to you as, as the parents. Right. Um, part of it I think was kind of natural because of just my personality and I'm pretty straightforward. And so when the doctors were looking at them and asking them questions, I would answer the questions before my parents (laughs) could. So there's, there's that piece of it. Um, but I also did straight up say very early on, I'm an adult. If there's a paper to sign, it's not yours to sign. And, um, you know, I want your input and I care very much about what you think. And I'm not going to make any, I'm not going to like sign away my life to something crazy, but I don't want to be treated like I'm a third party when I am the party here. Um, so I did have that conversation pretty early on with them. And it kind of continued because like I said earlier, the, the journey, my journey was one of, you know, I'm here, I'm independent, I'm doing my own thing. And all of a sudden I'm just like rock bottom, need somebody to help me bathe. And then I would get better and it would improve. And then, you know, something else would happen. And all of a sudden I was, you know, couldn't walk. It, It was just, constantly back and forth of being need, needing to be taken care of versus being capable of being independent. So it was kind of just keeping the lines of communication open with my parents for the whole time of here's where I need help, but also I want to ask you for help. I don't want you to assume the role of fixing all my problems. I'll, I will ask you when I need help. That must have been, as as you're saying that, I'm thinking my kids are kind of at the age that you were. um, And they're still like my kids. Like, you know, they're like, I don't, I still don't look at them as a 21 year old and 18 year old. They're like, they're my, they're my boys. And so if they needed help that way, like, I think my instinct, that must have been hard, I think, on your parents um, to like not jump in. Because I think if mine were in a situation like they needed help, you know, getting out of bed or whatever, I don't think I'd stop to ask. I think I'd just swoop in and be like, well, this is what needs to be done. And I'm your mom. How did that affect your relationship with them? That is so, it's so true. And that is spot on. Like, I really could not be more thankful for my parents and the way that they did handle, like the trauma that we all experience together. Of course, each person experiences individual trauma, but all of it together is a, a family trauma. And I could not be more thankful for the way that they handled it through. I mean, everybody struggled at different points, but it was definitely a challenge for probably my mom the most to do that, to be like, I'm going to 
see what needs to be done. I'm going to wait for you to tell me what needs to be done. I'm going to listen to you um, because she's my mom and she wants to help and serve and fix my problems. And um, it was definitely one of those things that just took a lot of honesty and a lot of communication and a lot of, you know, me apologizing when I'm being a jerk because, (laughs) you know, I was probably high and on, you know, pain meds and sassy to you because you tried to help me brush my teeth. Like, why wouldn't you try to do that? Um, 18 year old thing. They can be way regardless anyway. So see, you were doing some normal 18 year old. Yes, that is true. true. But on the other hand, I think it really, while it was really challenging, it also, I think strengthened our relationship in a lot of ways because it forced us to be vulnerable and honest and practice apologizing when we were wrong and practice listening and practice communication, just open lines of communication. And honestly, also, I have never felt more loved than the times where I was completely incapable of doing things, um, where I needed help to walk to the bathroom or where I needed somebody to bring me all my meals because my parents never skipped a beat of, yes, of course, I'm going to do that for you, even though I want to, I so desperately wanted to be able to do it myself. They were like, gave me so much space and then also jumped in when at the moment that I, you know, presented an opening. So it was hard for sure, but it also, I think strengthened our relationship in a lot of ways. Tell us a little bit about, you said you had ups and downs and you'd get better, but there was a point where things got pretty bad, pretty serious with you. Walk us through a little bit about that part of the story. When I was first diagnosed, it was metastatic and it recurred multiple times. First, it came back in one of my spine and then it started coming back in my brain. And I had one brain surgery, more tumors came back. I had radiation, more tumors came back. Ultimately, I got to the point where I just had my second brain surgery and the radiation plan was getting so complicated because I'd had so much radiation before that I went home and was waiting for about two weeks before the radiation plan would be finished to do the radiation to the spot in my brain where the tumor had just been removed to make sure it didn't come back. And while we were waiting for that plan to be finished, the tumor did come back and it was it had grown to the same full size that it was when it was removed surgically within that two week period. And um, because not just that one tumor, but because progressively the tumors had been growing faster and more aggressively and bigger and stronger. At that point, my doctors sat down with my parents and I was incapacitated. This is normally a conversation that I would be mad that nobody had it with me, but I was completely out of it. I was not available to have a conversation. And they told my parents that um, they expected me to have about six to eight weeks to live. And that was, I was not aware of that. I was, you know, just waking up here and there to maybe eat something to, you know, sit around with the people who were surrounding my bed. And, um, I honestly, looking back, I'm very thankful that I didn't know that 
because if I had known that, I think I would have been a lot more afraid and a lot less hopeful. Um, but <clears throat> I went home after that when they told me that I had six to eight weeks to live. And I went forward with the radiation plan that they had already been working on for two months. And um, I was taking a lot of other steps as well to reimagine the way that I existed in the world, kind of. That sounds very woo-woo, but, um, <laughs> you know, the food I was eating, the risk factors that I was just around, I just wanted to give my body the best chance of fighting the disease and responding well to the treatments and everything. So I had radiation at that point for, I think it was 17 treatments. And, um, that was also when I got engaged. And then, cause my doctor said that if you guys are going to get married, you should go ahead and do it. And so we just were like, let's, let's do it. Okay. And slowly, but surely I, through the radiation treatment and while I was, you know, focusing really heavily on my diet and overall wellness and movement. And I started to regain the ability to walk. I started to regain the ability to like feed myself. Like my motor skills started coming back. And um, it was just three months after that, that we got married. And I had, I actually did have two more tumors. They were very small and they came back on a scan that the doctor said, this isn't really threatening right now, but we want to go ahead and treat it. So I got those radiated. And then, I mean, the, my cancer just stopped growing. It just, it's not like it magically disappeared overnight or anything, but it stopped coming back. It stopped when it did come back that one time we treated it very mildly and cautiously. And over time, I just, I don't know. I just stopped getting cancer. That sounds so silly, but um, that was kind of the, that piece of it. Yeah. And all that's going on at the same time. You're, are you like, cause these are college years. Are you going through college? Are you trying to, to pursue an education and just that side of life as well? Are you trying to balance all of that? There for a part of it. So when I was first diagnosed, I took a year off. Like I was supposed to start, let's see, I was diagnosed in April and I was supposed to start college that August at Auburn. My doctor said pretty clearly, you're not going to be able to go to college through this because I was in the hospital for five to seven days at a time. I was um, very, very sick. That first treatment, like not cancer sick, treatment sick. And so um, for the first year, I took one year off of college. I did not start school my freshman year the way I planned to. But then when I relapsed, that was when my doctor said, okay, let's, let's refocus and let's see, what do you want to do? Um, let's balance, you know, wellness and the quality of your life with treatment. And that was when I, we took a more, um, diversified approach, I guess I would say. And I did start college, um, in August of one year after I was originally supposed to, and then I was being treated through various trials and experimental studies and stuff. During that time, I did have surgery at one point while I was in college. It was a, it was a really interesting college experience for yeah. Kayla because um, most kids don't like go to chemo after class. Um, but anyway, but when 
I, when I, when that tumor, when I had the brain tumor, my second one was surgically removed. And then that period of time that we just talked about when they didn't think I was going to live at that point, I dropped out. Um, and I think, honestly, I think I dropped out by deep. Like, I don't even remember doing it. I just all of a sudden wasn't in school anymore. Um, so I, there was a, a long year and a half or so that I was balancing treatment and college, which was really difficult. It also gave me so much um, energy and strength that I didn't really know that I needed. Just reminding me that I can be independent in some ways, even though I'm really not independent in others. So, so as you're, and you described it as a family trauma, which I think is absolutely on point as your family's going through this whole journey, which was long and it was traumatic. You guys decide in the middle of it, as you're putting all your energy into getting better, that you should start a nonprofit in addition to all that. So first of all, where did you get the energy and what kind of made your family decide that that was something they wanted to do right then? That is such a great question. Cause I often look back and go, what the heck were we thinking? I mean, it was wild. Um, but so when I relapsed for the first time in that conversation, you know, with my doctor of, we're going to talk about quality of life versus quantity where we want you to, you know, focus on your goals. And it occurred to us how many times we had just confronted the lack of research over the course of, you know, that year and a half that I've been treated already. And we had already talked about, you know, wanting to fundraise, maybe starting a foundation. We had fundraised for like the research being done at Children's of Alabama already, just on a personal level. And at that point, we really just, we were so shaken at the idea of we don't know what to do next. And they're, we're going to like, you know, see what works. Just, we're just going to guess for a while and see how you respond to it. We were like, this is, this is not something that children should have to do. This is not something that we want for future generations of children. And so all of the, this idea of funding research that had been, you know, kind of bubbling in us for so long, we were like, now's the time so many people are ready to help me. People came out of the woodwork to um, support us and to do our laundry and to bring us dinner and to pour out support for me personally, that we were like, we could channel this because of the amazing community support that we have into support for research to fund futures for, for the generation of children who are going to be diagnosed next. And, um, it was really a whirlwind and I wish that I could say that, Oh, I got my energy from this, but I didn't because I didn't have much energy to do anything in the very early days. I was just watching in awe as people came out of the woodwork truly to fundraise and donate and just be a part of it. And I was, you know, I was angry at my own situation but watching so many other people do channel their energy into something good, it helped me kind of channel my anger into passion and, and start focusing on what we could do rather than what we couldn't do. Yeah. So the name of the nonprofits, Open Hands, uh, Overflowing Hearts, what's the, what's the specific focus? Cause you mentioned a few things uh, when you summarize there, like what is, 
what's the mission and who, who are you helping and how are you helping? Great question. Our mission is to fund research to end childhood cancer. Um, that is our biggest focus. Always we fund research locally and we fund research nationally. So one of the research projects that we are continually funding year after year is a research project at Children's of Alabama that um, directly affects kids in our own communities who are being treated there because it, it extracts tumors from children who have relapsed and um, puts the tumors in mice and then tests drugs in the mice alongside children who are being treated in you know Children's of Alabama. And then we also are part of a collaboration where we receive grant applications from researchers all over the country at children's hospitals. Um, and we have a medical advisory board as part of this collaborative who basically comes back to us and says, these are the most promising things that are going on in the childhood cancer research world. We want you to give money to this. That is our mission. We believe that a cure found anywhere is a cure found everywhere. And that's what we do. That's great. Love that. I love that y'all are doing that. And I think it's really cool especially that you're doing stuff as well locally where, uh, where you were from. I think that's really neat. What's life like really quick, just to wrap up with you, what's life like post cancer? Um, you know, you got married in there. Um, you've moved from, from Birmingham and in Alabama. Like what's life like for you? Great question. Life is fun. <laughs> I don't know that I, for so long, I mean, I was being treated for three and a half years or so much time where I didn't know that life could be fun again. Like it was just hard for so long. So, um, I am in Tucson, Arizona. My husband and I live here and I am on staff at open hands overflowing hearts as a creative director, which means that I do all of the fun parts of designing and photography and, um, and also relationships with donors, relationships with um, families who are going through treatments and I get to, you know, just walk alongside people. And then I get to do fun things like this. That's what life usually is for me. It's, it's an immersion in the cancer world in a way that I didn't know was possible to have while I was sick. Um, that's not traumatic number one, and that's fun. And that's inspiring and empowering to watch so many people just work together for a good cause. And, also, I get to see the people who are benefiting from all of that work. So that's what my current life is like. I, we have two dogs and they are needy <laughs> sometimes, but they're precious. And yeah. Well, I think that's a great message, Kayla, that um, there is fun uh, after, right? Um, yeah. that, uh, that that's part of your story. And I think that's really cool um, because you went through a really tough, really tough season. And so to be in that dark tunnel and to know now that there's fun out the other side and, 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 and the fun is part of giving back um, to that same community. I think is really neat. So thank you so much for spending some time with us today. I know uh, for us, it was really great. I think for our listeners as well, to be able to hear your story, it's going to be encouraging. So we really appreciate you and, and thank you for taking the time to share uh, just some pieces of who you are and, and, uh, and what your story was like going through childhood cancer. Well, thank you for having me. It was a joy. I'm so glad Kayla could share her story with us. Um, hearing from a childhood cancer survivor is always inspiring, but getting to hear it from a teenager about the challenges that come with navigating, obviously, that particular phase of life at being 18 uh, with cancer at the same time is just, that's really eye-opening. 
And you're all in for another treat, too, because next week we're going to hear from Kayla's two younger siblings, Morgan and Andrew, both grown up young adults now, Mm -hmm. who will share about their experience having a sibling with cancer. So we'll see you then on the next episode. 